Kent. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. We are right in the middle of the holiday season. We are. Happy Hanukkah to all of you who observe. Yes. We we just got back from a trip where we saw four separate families for Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's a, it is a time of family and togetherness and, you know, getting all your kids together. Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a good time to talk about what we're going to talk about. What's that? We're going to talk about families. Yeah. Lots of children. Yeah. And government abuse. <laughs> you know, it's never a bad time to talk about that either. Yeah. Uh, so what we are talking about today is the Dion quintuplets. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of the Dion quintuplets? I always thought Dion Warwick was the one and only, a, a true original. Uh, different Dion. Okay. This is Dion D- Sanders. This is Dion. That's a last name. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like Celine. Moving Boop. on. Uh, so the Dion quintuplets are the first quintuplets to have survived infancy. That we know of. Do, 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 do. That anyone knew of, but I feel like people would have known. <laughs> it's a lot of babies. Uh, that is that's five babies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, all girls that were born on May 10th, 1934 in Corbell, Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Their names were Yvonne, Annette, Cecile, Emily, and Marie. Uh, they were all identical. So how do you really know there were five of them? It could have been one that moves really fast. Yeah, yeah. you think so? Really? I saw the flash. As I said, quintuplets is five babies. That's incredibly rare. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. if you if you look at the actual like statistics of how it can occur naturally, it's one in every fifty five million births. <laughs> so obviously, like with in vitro fertilization and things now. Uh, multiple births are more common, but at this time in 1934, um, it was pretty much unheard of for five babies to be born. Weren't the the John and Kate plus eight kids, those six tuplets, like in vitro or some other like fertility treatment? Yeah, they were all uh, fertility treatments for their twins and then their... Yeah, um, their their six tuplets. Yeah. (laughs) These are organic, free-range quintuplets, you're saying? Yeah, so like... Very, very rare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Unheard of for them to be born, let alone survive. Um, yeah. The mortality rate for even like twins and triplets at that time was, you know, astronomical. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to this day, they remain the only set of identical uh, quints to live to adulthood. Wow. Um, but there were non-identical ones that survived many times over the years. Um, right, but right. the next like recorded set um of surviving non-identical ones weren't gonna be born for um like nine years. Mm-hmm. The next one was in nineteen forty three. Right. So again, rare. <laughs> the girls were born two months premature. Uh, yeah, okay. Which is very common with multiple births. And dangerous. And very dangerous. Um, this is still in the time frame where to be born premature was almost a death sentence. Mm-hmm. We were getting to the point where there was more understanding of premature births and how to take care of babies. But at the same time, this is still when 
Dr. Cooney, who we talked about in our World's Fair episode, was still having his exhibits of incubator babies. Yeah, Because yeah. incubators were not a universal thing in hospitals. Mm-hmm. There was not also a universal version of them. So if a hospital did have it, it might have had a poor version of it. Right, right. Incubators on the cheap. Yeah. For chickens. Well, not necessarily that, like, that, but there were different models. Okay. And not all of them were great. (laughs) Um, I actually recently read a book completely on Dr. Cooney, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really good book. Highly suggest it. Uh, It was very interesting about this time in history and people's views on medical intervention or medical devices and what they would accept and wouldn't accept. But the big lesson is you got to make sure you get your incubator's oil changed and rotate its tires regularly. (laughs) Sure. <laughs> Every 100,000 babies, you got to take it in for scheduled maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. So when the girls were born, they weighed a total of 13 pounds, 6 ounces. So oh, no. They were the size of Moki. They were the size combined. of one-fifth of Moki. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Each, but like in total, that's so they scary. were a Moki. That's so scary. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Their mother, Elzier, uh, thought that she was carrying twins. Mm-hmm. Because she was like, well, I'm a bit larger than normal. Yeah. yeah. Um, never thought five babies. Who would think that? <laughs> Who would think that? Uh, she and uh, her husband, Oliva Edward, and her married in 1925. He was 19. She was 16. Um, so that was nine years before. Mm-hmm. They were a poor French-speaking farming family that lived outside of town. But Oliver was actually a descendant of Zachary Cloutier. Zachary Cloutier, uh, who was a French carpenter who immigrated to Quebec, also known as New France, in 1634. And was one of the first settlers there. Mm -hmm. Who had quite like a lineage and lots of money and stuff. Um, A lot of Cloutier, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting like connection. Um, But at this point, nine years into their marriage, they already had... uh, Multiple children. Mm-hmm. Um, but not multiple births. No. Uh, they, they had <laughs> multiple had... Multiple single children. <laughs> they had had six children by this point. Whoa. Uh, Ernest, Rosemarie, Therese, Danielle, Pauline, and then Leo, who died shortly after birth. Mm-hmm. After having the girls, they would go on to have three more. <laughs> mm-hmm. This woman is really fertile. <laughs> My goodness. Mm-hmm. It was a different time. They didn't know back then. Their mother actually uh, said that she had experienced intense cramping in her third month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of what she said, doctors afterwards believe that she might have had a sixth fetus that was miscarried at oh, that point. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So uh, the babies were delivered by Dr. Alan Roy Defoe and two midwives uh, by the name of Aunt Donalda and Madame Benoit LaBelle. Uh, after they were born, they were wrapped in uh, cotton and old napkins, and they were kept in a basket they borrowed from a neighbor and put by an open stove to keep warm. Good. And then they used some of the long-used old tactics, like mm-hmm. rubbing the babies in olive oil. Uh, so they could get a nice even brown on them. Yes. Okay. Feeding them sweetened water with corn syrup. Mm -hmm. Later, they would be fed homemade formula, which was cow's milk, boiled water, corn syrup, and rum. (laughs) 
uh, rum was a big thing or different types of alcohol was a big thing because it was like considered a stimulant for the babies. Like they do like a couple drops and it helped, they thought, keep the baby's <laughs> blood going. Did it though? Did it though? Dr. Cooney would use some of it for a while. <laughs> so news of the birth spread across North America very fast. Oliva's brother spoke to the local newspaper. What a snitch. Uh, Little blabbermouth. It's more like, so how much would you pay for this story? <laughs> and they're like, we're writing this story. Okay. Soon uh, supplies and advice were rolling in across from, from across the continent. If there's one thing that never changes, it's everybody wants to tell you how to raise your baby. Yeah, they got, I mean, they got a lot of supplies of like, here's things you can use. Here's warm clothes. Um, there's a hospital that actually sent a version of an incubator. But yeah, then they're getting like letters. There was one that was from like Appala uh, Appalachia that was put a different type of alcohol with this and then feed it to your baby. <laughs> they invented the 1930s mommy blog. Great. Love yeah. it. Uh, within days, the Canadian Red Cross uh, sent nurses and uh, another incubator mm -hmm. um, to the house and helped care for the kids during that time. The birth by many was was seen as a sign of like hope and strength because mm -hmm. it was the Great Depression. They were finding hope and strength in whatever they could. <laughs> <laughs> Little Orphan Annie. Lots of Shirley Temple. And five babies. Yeah. It's said that the family was approached by someone from the Century of Progress Fair here in Chicago mm -hmm. uh, to display the girls. Now, from what I've gathered and pieced together, uh, including from that book I was reading, it was yeah. not Dr. Cooney. Okay. Uh, his incubator display was already going for like a year at the fair with locally sourced midwestern mm -hmm. babies like he was not at a short supply mm -hmm. also because it was already going they were and it was planning to close in several months they were planning where they were going next right right they were busy they so, they weren't really able to stretch and this was kind of at a time where things were a little more challenging with getting into different places right it wasn't him. It was probably some, supposed to be a separate display. They probably were speaking to some other promoter from the fair. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The father apparently spoke to a local priest like, what should I do? And he's like, well, they'll probably give you a lot of money, so you should probably do it. You've got like <laughs> 10 kids to feed now. Whoever this mystery promoter is. You yes. Should, yeah. Uh, so it's said that he signed the contract, but then word got out, there was a lot of uh, pushback about it. Mm -hmm. um, people were like, oh, these babies are, you know, our hope during the Great Depression. This is like Canada's miracle. Mm -hmm. And they're like, wait, you're going to take them away and give them to like the United States and like put them on display? No, that's not okay. It's bad enough the Detroiters are whipping us at hockey every year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't, can't let him have this, too. So he, like, broke the contract. Nothing ever developed with it. But the Ontario government had heard about it and had stepped in. It's hard to say why the Ontario government to chose to step in at this point. But, like, <laughs> you know, they said they need they heard about it and they needed to protect the children from exploitation. So when the girls were four years or four months old... They were made wards of the state 
under the Dion Quintuplets Guardianship Act of 1935. They said that the parents were unfit, though only for those five children, not for any of their other children. Past or future. And custody was given to Dr. Defoe and two others to ensure their survival. The, the family kept, like, part guardianship, but they had no control uh, in the children's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and also were not involved in raising them. Because the children were taken away. Well, what good is the part guardianship then? If They're like, well, you know, we haven't fully stripped your parent parental rights. You're still, like, their father. You just can't say anything about them. <laughs> yeah, he, he just gets to wave yeah. more than the average person. So the government's initial plan was for two years. Because then by the time they're two, they're, they're like, well, they'll be able to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, they've made it through the worst. But then the government's like, hey, there's a lot of public interest. We could create a tourist industry around this. <laughs> uh-huh. So to protect the children from exploitation. We're going to exploit them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, so they were made wards of the provincial crown with the plan of it going until they were 18. Mm-hmm. What happened was across from their family home where mm-hmm. they were born, uh, the Defoe Hospital and Nursery was built. Uh, it was a nine, it had nine rooms and a staff house and was surrounded by a seven foot barbed wire fence. <laughs> uh, the girls were moved to the nursery in September and lived there until they were nine years old. Behind a seven foot barbed wire fence. Uh-huh. We wouldn't want anything bad to happen to these children. They, they have to have a normal, safe upbringing. Uh-huh. Okay. And, you know, not be exploited. So they had an outdoor playground designed to be a public observation area. Like a prison. <laughs> Surrounded by a cover a covered arcade which allowed people to see them behind one-way screens. What? Uh the girls couldn't see the people but could hear them and sometimes she'd see like shadows through the screens. Uh and they were brought out for 30-minute playtimes two to three times a day. So I'm assuming these children grew up convinced they were haunted. Just terrified of ghosts <laughs> at all turns. You would think. So their um, daily life was filled with tests, mm-hmm. um, lots of examinations and studies. Everything was like kept track of. There were records of everything that was going on with mm-hmm. them. Uh, they were cared for by nurses and had limited expo- limited exposure to the outside world, other people, their families. Uh, their lives were... Well, not that limited. The The whole outside world just came and waved hello behind a screen. But they couldn't see... They were like one-way screens. Right, so they couldn't right. see the people. They couldn't interact with the people. They just like knew people were there. Mm. But they didn't interact with them. I would love it if there was one visitor who just like shouted the day's headlines every day. <laughs> War breaks out in Europe. Let me, let me tell this one-year-old this. <laughs> So their lives were structured down to the minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were dressed always identically and had identical belongings that were marked with a color and a symbol be- that belonged to each of them. Mm-hmm. 6,000 people would visit the observation galleries in a day. And uh, 3 million people walked through there between 1936 and 1943. So, How much of this money did they see? I assume- oh, we're going to talk about that. I would assume there's an admission fee. We're going to talk about... Okay. 
So their family uh, did continue to try to get back the children. From across the street? Yes. Did they ever dig a tunnel? It's not no. far to go. No, they did not. Okay. But their family wasn't, you know, all rainbows and butterflies in this. Uh, their father ran a souvenir shop and concession store uh, across the street as well. Or he sold things with, like, pictures of the girls, plates, mm-hmm. commemorative stuff. Uh, I mean, it sounds like he's running a grift, but also, like, if anybody's going to benefit from the tourist industry of his own children, it ought to be them. <laughs> Um, he also sold stones from the farm that he said had a magical powers of fertility. I cannot say he's wrong. <laughs> uh, the midwives that were at the birth also opened their own shop as well. <laughs> now, $50 million in total tourist revenue was brought into Ontario because of the girls. Quintland, as it was called, became Ontario's biggest tourist attraction at the time, surpassing Niagara Falls. (laughs) Um, It actually surpassed most things in North America. I think it came in like fourth at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they opened up that mine to go down and get the really good fertility rocks from from deep, deep beneath the Earth's surface. Yes, here's some fertility coal. (laughs) Enjoy. October Sky had a really weird prequel. Yeah. Quintland was visited by various Hollywood stars, including Clark Gable, Betty Davis. Um, Amelia Earhart was there about six weeks before her last flight. And now we know what happened. She was too heavy laden with child to make it over the ocean. Oh, because of the fertility? She like stepped in and was suddenly pregnant? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Many times over. Dr. Defoe uh, was also becoming rich off of this and his guardianship. He was uh, connecting with a lot of advertisers and had a lot of speaking engagements because of his miracle work. Emily, come here. Your name is now Motorola. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, And the girls were plastered on products and commercials. They were... Sponsors for Quaker Oats, uh, for different toothpaste companies, for Caro corn syrup. Uh, They had, like, paper dolls of them. Like, Mm -hmm. whatever they could do, there was something. You know, all the twins in those double mint gum ads just saw the writing on the wall. They're obsolete now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the time when, like, Shirley Temple was going. So think anything you can think of that, like, Shirley Temple was on or doing or how they presented her is exactly mm-hmm. what they were doing with these girls. I don't want to imagine uh, the littlest rebel times five. <laughs> well, they never got that far, but the girls did star in three Hollywood films. <laughs> uh, they were fictionalized versions of their life. Oh, and they uh, played- that makes sense. They played the Wyatt uh, Wyatt quintuplets. Mm-hmm. The movies were called The Country Doctor, Reunion, and Five of a Kind. These were made between 1936 to 1938. Uh, two of them, they just mostly like appeared because they were like two. Yeah. So they were just like waddling around as kids. Um, <laughs> just toddling. Yeah. Uh, most of the scenes were shot at Quitland and just showed them doing what they do there. Mm-hmm. They really focused on the storytelling of the heroic doctor. I want to know the story of the midwife. Well, I mean, it was, well, because it was the doctor and the midwives. That's Doc- right. And So the doctor, Dr. Defoe, mm-hmm. was there with the two midwives. He's the one that has custody 
of the girls. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But I want the story from the midwife's point of view. I want to know all about the olive oil trick. I believe there was a book that was written. And how much rum to give my baby. Yeah. Yes. I believe a book was written or is... Maybe it's the book that I heard is coming out this coming year that's from the midwife's perspective. Ooh. There were also tons of newsreels that were <laughs> shot. Sure. Um, there was also a short documentary film called Five Times Five. Uh, that was about them having a private five-year-old birthday party in their garden. Uh, this was shot in 1939, and it was nominated for an Oscar in 1940. So, so what was Five Times Five nominated for, anyway? Uh, best live action short film too real. <laughs> uh, it lost to Sons of Liberty. I love old categories. Yeah, they they just they categorized their movies differently back then. They did. Yeah, they did. Uh, but I did find a ton of that newsreel footage, so we'll yeah. be linking that uh, in the description. So definitely check that out. To go back to something you said before sure. about admission. Yeah. So Quintland was actually free. But the government was getting the revenue that the girls generated through advertising campaigns and souvenirs. And then, like, other things that were spent while there. So that money was supposed to go into a trust fund. And that money was supposed to go to the girls. But it actually paid for the salaries of nurses and policemen to direct traffic and, like, toilet paper for tourists and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So in November uh, 1943... The Dion parents won back custody of the girls when they were nine, mm-hmm. and the entire family moved into a newly built house within walking distance of Quintland. Uh, it was a 20-room mansion paid for out of the Quince Fund, <laughs> with a lot of amenities and a lot of stuff that was considered luxuries at the time. Well, by now they did have around 20 children, so... The girls would state... Later in their life, that it was the saddest home they ever knew. Okay. You know, they just spent nine years of their life with very little contact with their family. Mm-hmm. Little to no relationship with their siblings. Yeah. And they were suddenly thrust into living with them. Yeah. So as hard as it was to live this secluded, on-exhibit life, mm-hmm. they were thrust to live with strangers basically. Right, to to immediately have that transition. And they would state it that they were not treated well in many ways by their family. Mm -hmm. And you can probably assume that, say, with even just their sibling relationships, there's probably a lot of, like, jealousy. Yeah, yeah. Or misunderstandings or, you know, you have kids both younger and older than them that are dealing with their five sisters being these basically superstars. Yet also livestock at the same time. Yeah. Um, And none of it's by the girl's choice. Mm -hmm. Because they're nine, after all. The the parents said they wanted to integrate the girls into the family. They instead were often traveling to perform at functions or to make appearances, always identically dressed. Uh, Some of the newsreel footage we're going to be including, a lot of it is surprisingly after they have left. Quintland, when they are in their teenage years, making mm-hmm. appearances different places, which shows how their family just kept pushing them into right. the limelight. Keep, keep that train rolling. Mm-hmm. The sisters would later say that their, their parents treated them as a five-part unit. They mm-hmm. were never treated as individuals. 
they were often told that they caused the family so much trouble just by existing. Mm-hmm. Even though they were paying for this new life of luxury yeah. uh, that they were now living in. They were often not allowed to do things that like the other their other siblings could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and were given a bigger brunt of the housework and chores. Well, um, Oliver Jr. ain't paying the mortgage, so he can do what he wants. Uh, and they were completely unaware for years that the house and food and cars were being paid for with the money they earned. Because mm-hmm. they didn't know they were earning money. They weren't seeing the money. Mm-hmm. They had mm-hmm. no idea. Yeah. The nursery, Quintland, that they had lived in, uh, was converted into a, into an accredited schoolhouse where they finished their secondary education along with 10 girls that were chosen from the area Mm -hmm. so even escaping it they didn't escape it yeah i wonder what that must have been like like those are some weird memories right if you think walking into your high school uh uh, gets like a weird bit of nostalgia in your head oh boy uh they would also later state that money was a monster and so many around couldn't resist the temptation Mm-hmm. So the people surrounding them would just give in to exploiting them or saying yes to something or making them do something for the money. Yeah, yeah. And like, that's got to be so easy for them to like justify themselves because there's this long line. Mm-hmm. Like if, if I don't, then somebody else will. And you know what? I'm, I'm better mm-hmm. for these girls than, than who knows who's behind me in line. Yeah. Yeah. So at age 18, the girls left home and had very little contact with their parents after that. (laughs) Uh, Three of them went on to be married and have children, Marie, Annette, and Cecile. Uh, Marie was living alone in 1970 when she uh, died at her home from a blood clot. Hmm. Emily uh, devoted her very brief life to becoming a nun. Um, she died at 20 because of a seizure. Oh. Um, she had actually had a series of seizures while she was a uh, postulant at the convent uh, and asked not to be left unattended because mm-hmm. of this. The nun who was supposed to be watching her thought she was asleep and left and went to mass. And she had a seizure and rolled over and suffocated. Mm. Mm. Um, there's a very strange newsreel about her becoming a nun. Mm-hmm. And then one about her sisters mourning her death. They've escaped, but somehow but they're still they... being like reeled into this. Yeah, and like yeah. for, I'm sure they weren't like, yeah, we want to do that. Like <laughs> people are still agreeing to this probably for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Yvonne finished nursing school, uh, spent much time sculpting, and then became a librarian. Oh. Uh, she would pass away in 2001. Mm-hmm. In 1994, uh, there was a TV miniseries called Million Dollar Babies that was produced by CBC and CBS, which is how I first heard about this. Uh-huh. So I was like six. I watched that miniseries. <laughs> um, but there were numerous different miniseries, films, novels written about them mm-hmm. over the years. In 1995, a memoir came out that I don't believe they directly wrote, but they you know, had a hand in writing mm-hmm. uh, where the three living sisters uh, came out that they were sexually abused by their father during their teenage years. 
and that mm. they tried to tell the school chaplain, but were told to continue to love their parents and wear thicker coats when they went for car rides, because that's where the abuse would happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe if their coats were, I don't know, say 50 miles thick. <laughs> Maybe uh-huh. if their coats were so big they were on the other side of an international border, that might be good advice. Uh-huh. This is why I say don't, don't feel too bad for uh, family there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. They weren't very... Dad wasn't a very good person in many ways. No, no. So in the late uh, 1990s, the Still Living Sisters came out to the media after launching a campaign for the Ontario government to hold a public inquiry into the mismanaged funds that were raised from Quintland. Mm-hmm. Uh, they appeared in an hour-long documentary called Full Circle, The Untold Story of the Dion Quintuplets. And in 1998, um, they reached a settlement for 3 to $4 million from the Ontario government as compensation for the uh, exploitation. Yeah, but that's Canadian. Well, and the money they really got was about uh, $750,000. Mm-hmm. Which each, right? each okay. between four. So like the three living sisters and then the most recently past sister, um, they a portion went to her descendants. Right. Because the fifth was a nun and had no descendants. Yes. Yeah. You know, which is still like, okay, you think a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But uh unfortunately for Cecile, uh her money was very mismanaged by her son, who bought um, an almost $200,000 duplex that they lived in for a while, which mm-hmm. was fine. Um, he then sold it seven, eight years later for only fifty-seven or $570,000. So almost tripled the value. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, not only. I'm saying that wrong. Uh, he <laughs> sold it for $570,000. and Good market, eh? <laughs> she then moved into like a high-end senior residence. Mm-hmm. And so there they had set up like a pay thing, so like the money was going, everything was fine. And then in 2012, the payment stopped. Uh-huh. And she couldn't find her son. Uh-huh. And she couldn't get in contact with her son. And um there was no money. Did she name her son uh Oliver the Third? Oh, it was like Bradford or Robert mm, or those something. Those Bradfords. Um, so she was placed under curatorship which is like the government deems someone unable to manage their affairs Mm -hmm. and um she she now lives on a government pension and because of this uh curatorship she can like only live where they say she can live Uh uh-huh um so her sister annette uh supports her as much as she can but is also having to support you know herself yeah yeah. as a senior citizen And so they actually came out with this, uh, like, story in 2016, mostly to, like, warn people, like, hey, be careful who you trust with your money, (laughs) even if it's your own child. Yeah. That's why you don't have kids. No. Don't got to worry about it. Um, So after all that, within just a few years, Mm -hmm. again, nothing. So one of the, their siblings um, opened... The, the Dion home into a museum many mm-hmm. years ago. 
it was moved several times. Like the house was moved in like the '60s and then the '80s. Now the, this home was this the the, the home of home. the birth okay. the birth home, not not the big mansion house. No, okay, like the birth home, uh, which was a very small house. Yeah, yeah. So it was moved several times um, and was converted into an official like nonprofit uh, Dion Quintuplets Museum in. 2016, uh, the museum was closed and the city was considering selling it, mm-hmm. uh, but a petition was circulated to preserve it. In 2017, again, they were like, we're probably going to sell it. But later that year, it was announced that it would move to another site, which would actually be back to North Bay, which is the area that they're from originally, and would reopen as a museum in uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. An article from... 2017 that year that this was announced um cecile and annette applaud the decision um saying that they're grateful for the survival of their birth home as a museum what they said was that they hope that the survival of the dion museum in north bay will give meeting and courage to all those who have been saddled with some type of abuse during their childhood uh-huh mm-hmm. and then they go on to say a lot of other things but like they're they're supportive of this place existing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because it does approach the subject in a lot of different matter that other things don't. Right. They began their lives as, as a medical oddity. Mm-hmm. It's like this this wonderful and and bizarre one in 55 million shot, mm-hmm. right? And now like, yeah, this is a museum about child abuse because that's what our life was. Yeah. Yeah. That's what a lot of things were from time periods past, where it's like very abusive situations and psychological mistreatment that nowadays we'd recognize, but back then no one thought better of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, no, no one with any power over it yeah. thought better of. The majority, though, of population was too, like, glazed over with the mm-hmm. flashing lights and right, pretty hair right. bows. When you're just watching the newsreels, mm-hmm. how much insight are you really going to get? When, oh, when oh, you're going watch to... Watch those newsreels. <laughs> it is so incredibly disturbing mm-hmm. to watch them knowing, like, what they were actually going through. Um, there was one in uh, particular that talks about how they're wards of the state and how that's great. Mm-hmm. And it's just like... Ooh, no. But doesn't that sound pretty great if you have no reason to distrust the Canadian government? I mean, uh, yeah, but... W- wouldn't you assume, like, oh, those, those poor unfit parents, they must be unfit or they wouldn't be wards of the state. And, and look at all these resources being lavished on these poor dears, uh, and and now we can we can learn so much from them about the human condition. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so their parents weren't great. No. Well, dad specifically, no. not great. No. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where it's like the whole reason they were taken away has nothing to do with those situations. No. And no one did anything about what was actually not great. Yeah. Um, instead, it was just this whole ploy to make money. Well, we don't want you to make money. We want to make money. <laughs> well, I guess, what, what have you learned, darling? Before I say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> You've done so much. Dear. Yeah. Take, take, close your eyes. Yeah. Relax. Take a break. Yeah. You, you've earned it. Okay. I mean, I don't think I knew anything about these kids. I know my dad visited their museum. Yeah. He didn't say when. 
So, and when would determine which location this yeah. often moved house would have been at. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I don't think I was familiar with this at all. I mean, in fact, when you said you were doing an episode on a group of children that were uh, seized by uh, the, the province of Ontario for no good reason, I thought this was uh, a First Nations issue. Oh, that's that's something we'll talk about sometime. There's I mean, a lot of that stuff to talk about. There's a reason earlier I had the caveat, if you have no reason to distrust the Canadian government. Yeah. Uh, that's not true for everybody. Nope. Uh, <laughs> Definitely not true for everyone. No. But yeah, just, just the bizarre idea that the the government can pass a law named after your children to say they are not your children anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are, like, so many First Nation and Native American things like this. Yeah. To talk about one day. The reason I chose this this time, though, was, like, I mean, this was, like, plastered across. Yeah. You know, plastered in a positive way across such marketing and media it rivaled Niagara Falls during this. This is where this is the time when Niagara Falls was where you went for your honeymoon. You yes. did not go anywhere, so you went to Niagara Falls, and it's and then when you're ready to have kids, you go to Quintland and yeah. you buy the special rocks from the shop across the street. Well, and what's so interesting is how completely unknown it is, mm-hmm. and in a day and age where there's so much reality TV. Based on large families and multiple, multiple births. births, unusual families of, yes. of many stripes. And it's like, there's a lot of things that show that's not a good idea to do. <laughs> um, they actually, the living, the sisters that were alive at the time, do you remember um, the McCoy sex tuplets? Wasn't that? No. Or, so that was like early 90s. Okay. Um, there's Bobby and I forgot the husband's name. But they had six tuplets. It was like, I remember it was a lot on like Dateline and all those like evening things. Sure. And I remember for years, they'd be like, oh, we're going to check in with them this year. See how they're doing. Mm-hmm. The Living Sisters like wrote a letter to that family, like a public letter stating like, please <laughs> be careful about how much in the public eye you have your children. Yeah. Um, and keep that money under lock and key. Mm-hmm. That family has been very selective. Usually, I, from what I, I remember doing, like a yearly, like twenty-minute special with like Dateline yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But still, it's or the uh, the Seven Up Kids, which are not you know, uh, septuplets or anything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. I don't want to like bash on Canada, but this is always one of those things that because I've known about it for so long, and people would yeah. be like, "Oh, Canada is so great," and I was like, "Oh, Canada's good, like everyone else." Some really dirty history. <laughs> Sorry, Canada. Sorry, Canada. I have a fun place for Canada. I grew up very close to it. Stratford Festival, love it. Yeah. Oil sands, you not know, a big fan Windsor, actually. Windsor, Ontario, great place to go when you're young. Yeah. Because uh, the drinking age is lower than in Michigan. Yes. Um, but <laughs> but I, I just think, you know, sometimes we like wash over something with, oh, this place is so great. Everything's so wonderful. Perfect. Well, no, every place has problems. Every place has corrupt things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always corrupt things in history. And it's so easy to like. Say, just look at one of those newsreels and be like, oh, look at these kids. They're so cute. Mm-hmm. Without ever knowing 
they lived through some pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. So two of the five are, are still alive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, best. They live best in the to them. Montreal area, I believe. Okay. They were doing like a dedication for the museum, even though it's not open yet. They were doing a, a thing, and they went. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're actually it was like the first time they'd been there in like twenty years or something. Um, apparently, it was very a very nice time. Happy eighty fourth and a half the birthday to them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, with that, I guess we'll be back with some letters. Yeah, letters. Welcome back, good, good friends. Hello. We have some letters that you sent, and we would like to read them to you. Yes. So here we go. One fighting cat wrote in, uh... Thanking us for plugging on Twitter their Extra Life stream. Uh, so if you did not see those tweets, uh, One Fine Cat also did an Extra Life stream like we did. And uh, they are still open for donations if yeah. you want to support them. They also share a ghost story. Well, not really a ghost story. A spooky story. Very spooky. Uh, uh, One Fine Cat was a baby. Parents had just moved in to their New York City apartment. Or from their New York City apartment to a home in the suburbs. And within the first week, a pipe burst and needed a remodel of the basement. So a contractor uh, came and was down there for a while and then came back up from the basement and was like, so what do you want me to do with your gun? (laughs) Their dad's like, I don't own a gun. What are you talking about? Apparently behind a hidden panel on the drop ceiling of the basement, there was a handgun with a clip and the serial number filed off. So uh, their father turned it over to the police, who had, like, lots of questions about the house. And they're like, <laughs> I don't know, we just moved there. Uh, and then a month later, the entire state of New York was like, we'll buy back guns. And their dad was like, dang it, I should have waited. <laughs> uh, one fine cat also says, uh, answers favorite treaty, and says, I disapprove of pretty much uh, everything Israel has done for the past several decades, but as a Jew, I find importance in treaties that continue to allow for the Israeli exist or for is for Israel's existence. So I'm going to go with the Camp David Accords leading into the 1979 Egypt Israel Treaty. And things I can't believe my government did. <laughs> Jesus, where do I start? I want to write the words mistreatment of minorities and refugees a b- billion times. Well, 400 years and counting. But they do point out the Tuskegee experiments. In particular. In particular. Thanks, one fine cat. So yes, that is the prompt you asked for for this episode. Yes. Of uh, what thing you can't believe your government or a government or whatever did. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think we're all kind of more like everything. We can't believe everything. Final Gamer writes in to, to thank us for our uh, most recent episode as they are fascinated by the Meiji Restoration and the Tokugawa Shogunate that uh, preceded it. So, yeah, right up your your alley there. (laughs) And their answer for that prompt is the ongoing Windrush scandal. So, way back in 1948, uh, the, the British Parliament passed an act nationalizing all people from British colonies as fully fledged British citizens with the right to settle in the UK without need of documentation. There, there was this big post-war labor shortage that, that made it seem like the smart thing to do 
uh, uh, from their perspective. And so it worked. Big wave of immigration from uh, the Caribbean, up to half a million people, including uh, this boat called the HMS Windrush, which carried 802 Jamaicans to those fair British Isles. Now, in 1999, they amended that act to specifically protect long-standing residents of Commonwealth-born British citizens from being removed from the country. Then, in 2010, there was a policy uh, by the Home Secretary uh, to crack down on illegal immigration through punitive measures to regularly check people's ID and refuse service to anyone unable to prove they had legal residence. So what that means is the Home Office burned all the original landing cards of the HMS Windrush passengers in order to, quote, protect personal information, even though that personal information is, you know, vital historical documentation that mm-hmm. was that was regularly used to verify the citizenship of uh, those, you know, the people on the ships and their descendants since. As a result, people who were born before 1973 are still currently being deported illegally by the government. We should mention that that uh, Home Secretary from from 2010 was Theresa May, the current Prime Minister. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. People have suddenly lost their jobs, lost their health benefits, even in the middle of vital life-saving procedures unable to pay mortgages for their homes, refuse the right to re-enter the UK if, if they go abroad for a trip. The, the current, well, I can't really say current anymore, Home Secretary has been fired because of the Prime Minister's former mistakes in that seat. So right now we're talking about at least 164 British citizens who have been mistakenly branded as criminals because the Home Office screwed up their own paperwork. So yeah, I think that qualifies for for yep. the the question that was yep. posed to the audience. Definitely. Thanks, Final Gamer. Uh, Sam writes in uh, answering that prompt as well, uh, and brings up the hundreds of thousands of people who were poisoned by the government as a result of prohibition. Um, the temperance movement wasn't particularly well thought out, <laughs> so the ban was on recreational alcohol. But alcohol was used in industrial processes. Um, when you know recreational alcohol was banned, the government noticed a high spike in theft of industrial alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, which was then you know being sold and consumed. Uh, so what does the government do? They began poisoning all sources of industrial alcohol with methyl alcohol or wood alcohol uh, in 1926. Thousands of people. Uh, the estimates as high as 50,000 died, while hundreds of thousands experienced illness as a result, uh, which included permanent disabilities like blindness and paralysis. Uh, hospitals were particularly flooded during Christmas and New Year's at the end of 1926. Now, the big part of this that Sam brings up is that there are other non-lethal ways to make industrial alcohol undrinkable. Soap. You could have just put soap in. It made, made them a little sick, but they wouldn't have died. Uh, the man who prevented this was Wayne Wheeler, uh, leader of the Anti-Saloon League. He claimed that the government had no obligation to protect the lives of people who drank alcohol and believed that anyone who drank it deserved to die. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
think, thinking back to some discussions we had with the Angels in America episode recently uh-huh. or the uh, very recent observance of World AIDS Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the idea that people in power will not really care about the body count as long as the right people, as defined by them, are the ones dying. Yep. Or even people who put rat poison in their garbage so, you know, homeless people don't eat it. Uh-huh. What do you care? It's or, your garbage. Or that uh, church in not too far away <laughs> from us that was, like putting bleach and all over the sidewalks and their planters because some dogs peed there occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. That too. <laughs> different case, but you know, I'm thinking this happens on many different scales. That's true. Of that people is true. being like, well, I only care about, you know, my situation. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if this kills anyone else or poisons anyone or yes, dogs, but also, you know, toddlers drop stuff all the time and then put it in their mouths. <laughs> You just put yeah. bleach in a baby's mouth. Th- very possibly, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Dan writes in, also answering this this prompt from an American perspective, but specifically a Latino-American perspective, and wants to talk about uh, the U.S.-backed uh, destabilization and uh, uh, assassination of Salvador Allende and installing uh, the fascist Pinochet in his place as the head of Chile. All in the name of preventing, quote, another Cuba. Thank you, President Nixon. That's an episode that's been on my to-do list for a long time, yeah. frankly. Uh, so I don't want to get too much into it here. Just, yeah, yeah, good call, Dan. <laughs> but on a non-governmental uh, uh, front, Dan also wanted to mention when uh, the Coca-Cola company in the 1990s hired death squads to assassinate union advocates in Colombia. You know, to to protect their operations there. Uh Uh-huh. Thanks, Dan. Oh, goodness. Uh, Joe wrote in and said that the thing they hate most is everything they've learned about their country since they got out of high school. All of it, every year, almost every month, the U.S. has done something outrageously, cartoonishly evil. Mm Mm-hmm. Joe also sent us a picture of their cat and Muffin's the best. I love Muffin. Muffin is a very good cat. Thank you, Joe. Haley is a uh, first-time writer. Glad to have you, Haley, uh, who found us in a podcast swap with a friend. Ooh. I would be excited to hear what you had your friend listen to. I'm I'm curious. Ooh. Podcast swap. I like this idea. Yeah. Congratulations on getting all caught up. Wow. You're you're good. With becoming caught up is a whole lot of prompts, and and Haley answered three. Uh, So yeah, the current one. Haley is a Native American studies minor, so there's a lot to choose from. Oh boy. Uh, One that will always win out is the Native American boarding schools, Uh which I alluded to much earlier in this episode. That's one I've planned to talk about Uh, over the years. From quite literally kidnapping children from their families to forcing healthy children to play with kids with tuberculosis so they would also catch it, to all manner of abuse, there was nothing, not a single thing beneficial about these schools. The slogan was, kill the Indian, save the man. That should say it all. Haley's met people who were there, forced into those schools, and has first-hand accounts of the things that happened there. Uh, also met several people who were children of kids sent to boarding schools who had to watch their parents suffer the trauma and, in turn, suffered it themselves. 
Haley's favorite place and a historical fact about it uh, is Marquette, Michigan. Aww, Marquette. Hands down the most beautiful place they've ever been in their life uh, with a close, tight-knit community that's very warm, down-to-earth. Haley's familiar because it is where she went to college. Yeah. I, I assume that's Northern Michigan University. Yeah. So if you're ever there, go go check out uh, Pres- Presque Isle Park, which leads into a historical fact about Marquette. Chief Cobagam is actually buried in the park. Uh, he was part of uh, a group of Ojibwe, Ojibwe people who lived in the area that would later become Marquette and worked very closely with Peter White, one of Marquette's founders, as far as the settlers go anyway. Cowbagum was very influential and just an all-around interesting figure of history. Thank you. And number three for this letter, anyway, is going back to our very first prompt, favorite boat. Boat! Haley didn't have one specifically, uh, so she cracked the books and wants to talk about the SS Meredith Victory, a U.S. cargo ship in the First World War. Uh, However, it was also deployed in the Korean War and was responsible for the single greatest refugee rescue undertaken by any ship. At the end of 1950, troops were evacuating northern Korea after an onslaught of attacks. Around 100,000 soldiers were set to leave on 200 ships. Uh, Civilians and refugees had heard of the evacuations, and about 100,000 of them, uh, doubling the total, gathered uh, hoping to board the boats. The Meredith Victory's captain uh, ordered almost all weaponry and supplies to be unloaded so he could fit as many refugees as possible. And that uh, ancient ship by, you know, uh, uh, U.S. naval standards rescued 14,000 refugees all on its own. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Haley, and thank you for the pictures oh, of your dogs. Oh, they're so cute. Rome and Cal, two sweet little rescues who are now living very spoiled lives. Oh, they're so cute. And thanks to everybody who wrote in. If you would like to send us a letter, where can those go, dear? Podcast at gmail.com. And that's where we want to hear your, your show suggestions, your questions, your uh, corrections, anything you might like to share with us, including our regular prompt responses. And for our next episode, I want to know everyone's favorite military dictator. Oh, goodness. This is episode 65. <laughs> we have to get creative. We're going on to episode 66 now, and I don't think people have more than 60 favorite things. <laughs> We need to do, like, an episode on, I don't know, ice cream. And what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Just to, like, break this up. (laughs) (laughs) But, yes, those can go, too. Historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. While you're out there, I'd love it if you could uh, give us a a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever else you found us. I I just checked our iTunes page. We got a few new ones in that made me so happy. Yeah. So thank you all for those. Uh, you can also tell a friend, or you can be like Haley and her friend and do a podcast swap. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool new hip idea. <laughs> and I would love everybody who listens to History Honeys to to swap with a friend who listens to Sex Archie. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, word of mouth is a wonderful thing. It is a great tool. And we get uh, lovely things from it, like Haley's letter. Yeah. And pictures of those dogs. Pictures of dogs. Depending on how extremely online you are, you might already be aware of this, but I would like to recommend people watch a a five-part YouTube documentary on MMA, 
called Fighting in the Age of Loneliness. Oh, goodness. It is, in a lot of ways, it's something that I like to think this show can be. Mm-hmm. It is a, a, an examination of uh, the late 20th and early 21st century uh, in, in like the global system by looking at what happens to our weirdos. Yeah. Which is MMA fighters and fans. Th- those are our weirdos. Yes. Yeah. It's it's by uh, the the best person in uh, internet sports journalism, perhaps ever, John Boyce, uh, and, and a collaboration with noted weirdo aficionado uh, uh, Felix Biederman, and it's so so good. Well, I have a recommendation too. Yeah, and that's the book I mentioned, "The Strange Case of Doctor Cooney: How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies" by Don Raffel. And uh, Dr. Cooney is spelled C-O-U-N-E-Y. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Though what you'll learn from this book is in many historical documentations and things that mention him, it is spelled many different ways. (laughs) (laughs) And they don't think it's his real name. So just so you know. But yeah, so if you want to learn more about the incubator babies that we talked about in this episode and the World's Fair episode, Mm -hmm. uh, this is a book that came out pretty recently. Um, and I wish I would have been able to read it before I did the previous episode. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting. It, it goes into a lot of different um, aspects of this history. A lot of the stuff that you'll find, especially in this time period with like, I guess, fairs and whatnot, is there's a lot of stuff that doesn't match up. And the, I feel like the <laughs> author does a really good job trying to investigate and... Mm-hmm. Um, Find the truth of it out of conflicting sources. Yes. Um, I will say she got one fact wrong. Oh? About the Belbo Monument. Oh. (laughs) Towards the end of the book, I was like, oh, this is good, this is good. And then, I'm sorry, author, but the Belbo Monument is not in Grant Park. No. It is in a part of Park that is south of there, but not Grant Park. Burnham Park, I, I believe that is technically called. It's by Burnham Harbor. I don't know if it's technically called Burnham Park, but it's not called Grant Park. No. Uh. Uh, (laughs) But good try. Uh, It's actually a pretty quick read. Mm -hmm. I'd say two thirds of the book are, or not two thirds. I'd say a quarter of the book is just like references. (laughs) (laughs) So you get through it a lot faster than you think you will. That helps. That helps. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Again, a happy Hanukkah to to all of you who celebrate it. And I hope uh, those of you who did anything for American Thanksgiving had a great time doing it. I know mm-hmm. we did. Yeah. With those four families we mentioned catching up so with. So many dogs. So many dogs. So with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.